Do you have a teen that is driving you crazy? Or maybe you've got a teen you suspect might be taking drugs. Well, you need to listen to this podcast because I have on my show today, Dr. Jessica Peck. This is part two of a wonderful series we have done with her. Before we get to the interview, I want to tell you a bit about her as a pediatric nurse practitioner in primary care. Over the last 20 years, Dr. Peck has engaged, encouraged, equipped, and empowered families to raise holistically healthy kids. She guides parents to help navigate challenging parenting moments to escape shame and stigma with grace, hope, and courage. She's from Texas, and she's a clinical professor at the Baylor University Louise Harrington School of Nursing. She's an internationally awarded nursing leader. She served as president of the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners. We're going to be talking about her new book, Behind Closed Doors, a guide to help parents and teens navigate through life's toughest issues. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. All right, let's go to my interview with Dr. Peck. So what does a parent say when their teenager goes, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be home for dinner. I'm not going to go to bed when you want to. I think that parents get a lot of pushback from teens. And when they get it once or twice, they throw up their hands and say, okay, he doesn't like me. He doesn't want me. I'm going to go in the background. What would you say to that parent? Because what you're saying is absolutely right. You know, kids need what you just said but they don't necessarily want it on the surface. And so parents believe them and they have a hard time then getting past, okay, I'll just give up then. So how do you coach that parent? I coach them to seek validation and encouragement from someone other than your teen. For me, this is my sister, okay? My sister is also a mom of four teens and I may call her one day and say, listen, Jamie, I was on my A game today. I was the best mom you could ever imagine. I spent way too much money. You know, I did all the right things and I didn't even get a thank you. And she'll say, you are the best mom ever. And that sounds so silly, but it really does help. And again, you have to just have the confidence to parent for the long game and recognize that you may not get that validation, but don't give up. I think a lot of times what I see too is parents are afraid of their teens. We don't need to be afraid of our teens. We have generally, most of the time, we have more resources than them. We have more experience than them. We have more skin in the game than they do. Uh, We have more maturity than they do. That's what I'll tell my kids. I'm like, you can fight me if you want to, but I'm going to win. So, you know, that's, that's fine. (laughs) And I think that, you know, we just have to deliver those consequences, not in anger, but just stick by it and just say, you know what? I love you enough to set this consequence and just let it be and just be, let them have their hysterics, let them have their big emotional drama and just sit with them in that moment. Don't let that carry you away with it. Our job is not to be carried away with the emotions of our teen. Our job is to, is to be still and to be their anchor. Yeah. I love it because I think that teenagers, 17 year old or 16 year old can look exactly like a three-year-old sort of screaming and throwing their hands and spitting and saying we're mean and this kind of stuff and (laughs) if we didn't let it bother us then it shouldn't bother us now the only difference is that teenagers bigger and sometimes taller or we're intimidated by them but I think 
you can also do it in a way that's kind of fun. My line with my kids is, look, you can do whatever you want and you can break your curfew, but here's the deal. It's my car and my car needs to be in our garage at 11. So you need to somehow figure out a way to make that happen. Or, you know, you can do these things with your phone, but you kind of realize it's my phone. And they would laugh and, and we'd go, okay, but, but in a way, just sort of make light of it. But what you're really saying is, look, kid, you, you can do whatever you want and have your temper tantrums. It's okay because I can handle you. I can deal with you, you know, and to give the child sort of a safety in a way to act obnoxious, but to let them know at the end of the day, good day, you're not rattled and you're not going to change the rules because they're good for them and they don't recognize it and it's tough but i think there's that real sort of intimidation factor that a lot of parents feel with their teenagers like i can't i can't i can't because then they're not going to like me it's really okay if they don't like you because in a few short years you can be best friends with your kids when they're 25 or 30 and and it's not that far away but it's okay to give them pushback and sort of rattle their cage a little bit when they're 17 because it's really, really important for them. I want you to talk about kids' schedules. One of the issues that I have in encouraging parents of young kids or middle school kids, or even high school kids, is falling into the trap that they believe their kids' lives are going to turn out better and their kids will be happier if they allow them to do so many things during the week outside of school that they're never home, that the family never um, has dinner, because I hear this all the time. Well, you know, my eight-year-old is on the elite soccer team, so we have to go away for the weekend because my child needs to, my child's that good, and they need to do this. And what they do is they divide the family. Talk about the pros and the cons of that in relation to mental health. Well, we are kindred spirits here because that is what I say in the beginning of Behind Closed Doors is what teens want from you is your most valuable commodity. And that is not your money or enrollment in elite sports. That is your time. That is what they want. And it's hard because it seems like they don't but they really do. You have to take time to build that. And I think that seeing kids go with a frenetic pace, and especially I know this is going to really step on some toes, so I'm apologizing in advance. But everywhere I go, every professional healthcare organization talks about the dangers mentally and physically of competing in one sport year round. The numbers of kids you know, who are in sports who go to the pros is very, very low, but those kids who are competitive from a very young age, it's even lower. And there's a lot of research that says they feel more insecure, they feel more depressed, they feel more anxious because there's such pressure to perform and they're more risk for overuse injuries, which can disrupt the whole family's life. You know, I had one um, kid who was a very competitive basketball player and he had a career ending knee injury when he was 18 and his family have, was going to move to college and their whole life revolved around that. And, you know, I just think for me, I can tell you that we have always made it a practice. I have four kids and we go together everywhere as much as we can. Even if it's to the grocery store, 
even if it's to somebody's little league game or, you know, wherever we're going to go, we try to do that together. And I'll tell you, my kids are really close and we are seeing the fruits of that. Now they're really, really close. So sometimes they fight, you know, because when you're close like that, you fight like brothers and sisters. But I love to see that. I think we need to have a healthy balance where we are giving kids space to breathe and to be kids. Mm-hmm. Just to get away from the noise and the constant sense of being mentally and emotionally and physically on. And yeah. sports do that with kids. I also see a lot of burnout, usually around freshman or sophomore year in high school, because I think a lot of the burnout comes from not just physically, but this deep sense that kids have that they need to keep doing that in order to have their parents' approval. Now, the parent would say, that's not true. I don't need him to go to the Olympics. He can stop anytime he wants. And yet we're the parent who shows up screaming on the sidelines. So, you know, we have to be willing to take a hard look at ourselves and say, if my eighth or ninth or 10th grader doesn't want to do this, they don't have to do it. And when we give kids the freedom to choose whether to continue to go on or not, the whole game changes. So I think that we have to be very, very careful. So Jessica, in our, in our first time together, you were talking about things that parents can do to help prevent depression and anxiety in their kids, to help them have closer, healthier relationships with among themselves as siblings and with their parents as well. I'd like to talk about the actual treatment, if you will, of depression and anxiety, because I think a lot of people feel that it really can't be treated, particularly if you're the depressed person. I always tell kids and adults, depression talks to you and it tells you, don't get treatment. That's really stupid. There's nothing you anybody can do for you. You're just a loser. You might as well give up. So just stay in bed. And to understand as a parent that may be emotionally, mentally where your kid is if they're experiencing depression. So you as the parent need to say, whoa, 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 I'm not going to buy into that. I'm going to take you in a different direction. So talk to the parent now whose child really has depression and anxiety. They can see it. They're worried about it. They call their physician and say, okay, I need to bring my teen into you. Talk to that parent about, is there a way out for their teenager? Or is that teen on their way to suicide and there's not a whole lot they can do? After they've talked to their physician, what happens then? There is absolutely hope and help for depression and anxiety. Again, we live in this world where we expect immediate gratification and we can have things customized to us anyway. I mean, I can go in and order my Starbucks drink any way I want. And my husband always begs me to use the app because he's too intimidated to order. But we cannot custom order treatment for depression or anxiety. It is not going to cure depression and anxiety like the pink stuff or strep. We're not going to say, okay, you're going to be feeling better in 48 hours and next week you'll be back to your normal life. You have to realize that treatment for depression and anxiety is highly individualized and it takes a long time and it's not a steady upward journey. It has setbacks and 
victories and valleys and mountaintops and plateaus and all this messy sort of back and forth looping journey. But you have to look over time, it is getting better. And if you look and see where you were a year ago, if you are progressively looking for treatment, you're going to find that you're not in the same place that you were before. So it's important to continue to try. If, if your provider recommends medication and it doesn't work, then be patient to try another one and realize that it could take four to six weeks or even longer for you to know if that is working. In the meantime, don't underestimate the value of the relationship and the companionship you provide in the journey. So while they're walking through, I say it's like a storm and we're just waiting for that storm to pass, but having companionship in there, having someone helping you build shelter, having maybe you can't make the storm go away, but you can build them shelter, you can give them a blanket, you can give them a hot drink, you can sit next to them. And those kinds of things are absolutely invaluable. So, you know, and it's important for your teen to feel connected to their therapist. That may take you two or three times to find somebody to do, but just be patient and don't give up. Now, no parent, well, probably 99% of the parents listening to us do not live within five miles of your office. So how do they find <laughs> a good <laughs> a good therapist, a, a therapist that they know, that knows really what they're doing and how to help their child out of depression? Where do they find that person? What kind of questions should they ask that person as they interview with them? Those are great questions. So this really has to do with your relationship with your primary care provider. If you're seeing someone on a regular basis who works in the community, they should know who to refer you to. So for example, in my community, I have my little black book and I know everybody's personality and I actually go and interview them and see what is going to be a good fit. What is their specialty? And so I can make that referral with confidence. But if you don't have that, because the real truth is sometimes you can't get in to have an appointment and sometimes you can't afford it even if you could or you can't take time off from work so those are important things to go back and talk to your primary care provider about but there are some resources online psychology today is one of them the christian counselors association is another that will help you to find a therapist in your area who is on your insurance and there are a lot of different kinds of therapists that you could have there's licensed counselors licensed social workers there's psychologists psychiatrists Again, I think the point of access is going to come through primary care to be able to access that, that kind of specialized care. Parents, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Dr. Jessica Peck. We need to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. I'll be right back with more of this conversation. Welcome back to Parenting Great Kids. My guest today is Dr. Jessica Peck. So as a parent sitting in the storm with a child who has depression, anxiety, and eating disorder is really, really tough and really tricky. What are the things that parent should do or shouldn't do? Because parents need to know, I'm willing to stay in the center of the storm for my child as long as need be, but I don't want to mess up. So what are a couple guidelines you could give that parent? 
I can give you some really practical advice. And part of that, two parts. One, the first part comes from my own personal experience. When my second daughter was born, she was diagnosed with an immune deficiency and she was very sick and had to be isolated from everyone. And, it, and through some of the health issues that she had, she developed post-traumatic stress disorder. I was a pediatric nurse practitioner and I did not see it. I thought she had asthma and <laughs> she was having panic attacks because as a parent, you just, you, you worry about those physical things. And so I think if you look back and you think, oh, I missed it, or I wish I'd done this, just accepting that you did the best you could with what you knew. And when you know more, you do better. And you have to just forgive yourself for that and just know that you are doing the best that you can in that moment and looking at it. And I remember when my daughter had her first big panic attack when she was at a camp, we had gone somewhere for the first time. I was a nurse at the camp. She came running into my office, locked the door. These girls come running in behind her. They are absolutely terrified because they have no idea what's happened to her. And I just remember it being such a picture of saying, she was locked in into my bedroom on one side of the door. And I said, on the other side of the door is support and you're locking it out. And so we just opened mm -hmm. the door, invited them in and said, she has anxiety. This is what this looks like. Here's what you need to do. Here's when you need to go get an adult. And instead of judging her, those girls were on a mission. They were like, we know how okay. to support our friend. And they felt empowered. Yeah. So I think that's important. Yeah. The second thing is, though, it is a very real fear of parents and a very real threat of suicide, that these things are going mm -hmm. to progress to the point of self-harm or suicide. And so what I would say to that is, Anytime you feel like things are not right, then ask. It is always okay to ask about suicide. Asking does not give anyone ideas that were not there before, and it does not make them more likely to do it. In fact, it saves lives. And research shows that only 30% of kids who acted out on suicidal thoughts of behaviors told somebody trusted about it. And about 25% make the decision to take their own life within five minutes before, and another 25% within 15 minutes before. So this is an impulsive decision because teens are impulsive. So we just need to make sure we have safety guards up. We do that through what we call means reduction, making sure your house is safe, that they don't have access to a loaded gun or other weapons or medication that they could overdose on, staying with them during those times that are scary. If you ever discover your child is having suicidal thoughts and they have a plan, you say, do you have a plan? That's an emergency. You need to go to the emergency room. You need to do whatever you can to access emergency services. If they say, yes, I'm thinking that, but no, I don't have a plan, that's urgent. That just means you need to get them in the next day to the pediatric care provider and start looking at what is the reason for that. And I'm really sad mm -hmm. to say that a lot of times those come from behaviors where kids are, parents are not talking to their kids about things that they might encounter because they don't want to expose them to something. Let me explain what that means. So 
often I said earlier, you asked me about the top threats and I said sexual behavior online. So I see a lot of teens who engage in sexting and they don't tell their parents and they get sucked into this spiral. And then all of a sudden, sometimes it even becomes blackmail saying, you better give me more or I'm going to tell people. And they feel shame because they've never had that door opened and they don't know what to do or how to get themselves out of the situation. So I think it's really important for parents to intentionally expose their kids to these threats in a developmentally appropriate way that positions you as the expert. And, and let me tell you, when I talk with my kids about these things at home, they do not say, oh, mom, thank you so much. That was a great conversation. No, my son will pull his hoodie over his face and pull the drawstring until yeah. only his nose is sticking out and say, we will never speak mm -hmm. of this again. But I know they'll come to me later yeah. and they'll say, hey, you remember you talked to me about that? I have an awkward question. Then they'll ask me to turn my back and not look at them you know, while I tell them. But, right. um, but I think that's, yeah. a very, that's a very real threat that, that parents are, are right to be worried about. Yeah. And I, and I love that you say, you know, say it out loud, regardless of the reaction you get from your teenagers. Because when you say hard things and you talk about things that they're embarrassed about or ashamed about, they like hearing what you're saying. They really do because it helps. They know that you're an authority. They know that you get it. And sometimes they think that you're reading their mind. You know, one of the funny <laughs> things about my job, I think it's funny, <laughs> my patients don't. But, but teenagers will come in my office and they may be sexually active and they believe that I can look at them and tell how many partners they've had. <laughs> I have no clue. I have no clue. I don't even know if they've been sexually active, but they want to tell somebody. And if they, if they feel confident that they can talk to you about it, it just opens up this whole level of, of communication and it takes it down a notch as far as the intensity. So I love that you say that out loud anyway. It's like asking your child if they have felt suicidal or if they're, they're thinking about it, that's a terrifying thing for a parent to say. And like you said, parents feel that they're going to put ideas in their kid's head. But really just the opposite, I think, happens. They're like, wow, my mom knows this is a big deal. And she's watching and she's listening and she wants to help. And I think that alone hugely reduces maybe the risk that the child's going to uh, take their own life, but it, at least it reduces the likelihood because they'll talk about it. And, but it's, it's really, really hard. We only have a couple minutes left, but I do want to address this issue that you brought up several times and that weighs really heavily on a parent's minds. And that is the idea of treating depression with medication. Now I have done that. I don't know if you have done that, but here's where I come out on that. I believe strongly that depression is a very serious issue and that we need to hit it with all guns firing. And that by far and away, the best place to start is with a good therapist. And very often, a good therapist alone will do it. Sometimes, because as you said, of where we're living now, I can't get kids into a therapist for two months. And at the same time, I don't want to see that child walk out the door hopeless. So I may talk 
to their mom and them about the possibility of starting medication with a parent watching very carefully. If they see a bad reaction of the child getting more depressed, off they go. Um, because the reality is our psychiatrists who are really good in dealing with depression, they're so full they can't take kids. Our good therapists in town, they're so full, particularly after COVID, they can't take care of kids. So these kids land in my office. Now, I'm not a therapist. I know a lot about the basic medications um, that we use for depression. And so if you find yourself as a parent in that kind of a situation, talk to your primary care doctor about it and put all cards on the table. I never would give a child a medication, and this is why I encourage parents with their pediatrician or internist, I never would give a person medication if they don't agree to therapy. Because medication alone doesn't cut it. Maybe in rare situations where they're biochemically off. But that's where I come down on all the different kinds of treatments. Because I think that depression is a very serious illness and that parents have to be willing to discuss all options with a therapist and a physician they trust. I want you to feel completely comfortable responding to that. And if you don't agree, please just talk to us about that. Well, I love it. And I think if you ask my husband, he would tell you, I feel very comfortable to disagree and to speak my mind for sure. But I, I, I agree with that. And I think that parents will be really reassured to hear that you and I are on exactly the same page. You're a pediatrician. I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner. I agree with you 100%. And sometimes parents are resistant to medication, but that's why I said it can be a very useful tool, especially in that first time. Because like I said, when parents come in, this has usually been going on for a really long time. And we may be already at a point of crisis. And that's why we can't over-spiritualize mental health. We have to recognize the biochemical, physiologic basis and recognize that medication for some people is literally life-saving. And that is really important. Another thing that I see just that's a trend that I hope continues is that we're training more and more primary care providers to be comfortable in treating things in the primary care setting. So I think parents are more likely to encounter people who have specialized training or they have access to resources. So most states actually have a hotline that you can call, the provider can call from the primary care environment to say to get access to a psychiatrist Monday through Friday most of them are available 8 to 5 and you can say okay this is the mental health condition we're looking here and you can have that phone call consultation so for example in the state of Texas they started it it's called CPAN the child psychiatry access network and the state funded it with 100 million dollars I mean they wow. were really intentional saying, we recognize we have to increase access to care. So I'd be glad to give you the website if you wanna put that in the show notes. And that can be something that I tell parents, ask your primary care provider if they have access to that. If you're trying to decide what to do because you can't get in for six months or things are not getting better, then that may be a resource that your primary care provider maybe not even aware of because again, we just, we, this is new and we don't have machinery to uh, respond to this very effectively yet. And it's kind of a patchwork approach and the parents are in the middle of that, but they can be a really effective part of the care team. 
Jessica, this has been an amazing interview, and I'm so appreciate you coming on and clarifying for parents a very complex uh, situation and complex illnesses, but particularly to tell parents, you can do this, you can help your teen, there's always hope and there is a solution and that solution has a plan. Maybe the different plan for every person, but there is a plan and a way out. And so I'm so grateful that you came on today. And I strongly recommend that every listener to get your book, Behind Closed Doors, A Guide to Help Parents and Teens Navigate Life's Toughest Issues. And I'll tell you that issues have never been tougher than they are today. So thank you for writing the book and thank you for giving us such great advice. Thank you so much for having me. And I would just say as a last word to parent, there is hope for healthy relationships. And I believe relationships are the key to all of these issues. That is the foundation that you need to have to weather life's toughest storms and get through life's toughest issues. You can do it. We are cheering you on. There is hope. Don't give up. You're doing a great job. Every I love you matters. Every little everything what you do matters. How can people find out more about you, more about your book, or find out what you're up to? I would love to connect with everybody at drnursemama.com. That's drnursemama. That's my professor brain, hands-on nursing experience, and heart as a mom. I have a podcast that I co-host with a pastor, and we explore the integrations of faith and health, and just give hope for parents for healthy relationships. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Peck. As you can tell, she is a nurse practitioner with years of experience helping teens and their parents. Let's go over my points to ponder. One, try to understand before you react. When we're worried or hurt because of our teen's behavior, we tend to just react. We yell or we storm out of the room. Don't do that. Rather than react by getting mad, try to figure out what's going on beneath the surface. Take a big, deep breath before you react. If you're patient and loving, you'll see that there's always a story beneath the pain. Two, be quick to get help. Many parents minimize their teens' behaviors and pass them off as their kids being, quote, just kids. Believing that all teens hide in the room, slam doors, or yell at their parents, this is not true. If you see any suspicious signs of depression, drug abuse, whatever, call a trusted friend. Talk with him or her about what you're seeing and ask for help. Between the two of you, you'll find a plan moving forward. Three, take responsibility. As hard as it is to face, trouble in one member of the family doesn't exist in a vacuum. Many times we are contributing to the problem. That means that we have to be tough enough to go to a counselor and ask for help. Perhaps you didn't start the trouble or perhaps you did. It doesn't matter. Every parent is involved in their teen's trouble. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Jessica Peck, for joining me on the show today. You can follow her at drnursemama.com. That's drnursemama.com. You can also follow her on social media. Just search for Dr. Nurse Mama in your internet browser. Now, let's recap my points to ponder. One, try to understand your teen 
before you react. Two, be quick to get help. And three, take responsibility. Well, friends, if you need help or encouragement or any answers to your questions about your kids or your relationships with them, go to meekerparenting.com. I have courses and tips and blogs and more to help you. And if you know a dad who needs encouragement while you're there, check out my brand new Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters Masterclass. And always remember that great kids are raised, not born. <laughs>